0: This podcast is created as a part of the podcast lab by India Film Project in association with Anchor by Spotify. You, me, films, and the world is equal to this podcast. No, no, take two. You, me, and just geeking about films is equal to this podcast you're listening to. This is Around the World in 8 MM. I am Rakub Kidar and I talk films. Okay, so did you go through a directive phase when you discovered camera for the first time? Do you remember that era of handycam or those small digital cameras? Yep, I and my cousins had the filmmaking phase around that time. We spent hours coming up with stories and shooting stuff we were all very influenced by television then and you'd think we'd try to replicate something from tv like some show or something we did have our version of indian idol but for some reason we made advertisements i distinctly remember this one teleshopping ad we made where one of our cousins she had her front teeth had fallen off she was supposed to be this unhappy customer who fell prey to some commercially sold toothpaste And it was very pro might I say. It had like proper shooting and then dubbing and then there was this one ad we made about handbags so strong that you can't get mugged. One of her cousins dressed up as a thief and we made moustache out of paper and stuck it on her face with fevi stick or cream maybe. Who knew it will turn into one of the most embarrassing videos from her childhood. No really. She's not let anyone see those. And I know it's a crime to compare YTT and Clement's cult classic What We Do in the Shadows to some videos we made as kids, but that is exactly where this film took me. It's a bunch of kids who have discovered a camera. But YTT and Clement are no kids and even though the film has a chaotic energy, they know what they're doing and they do it wonderfully. Remember in the last episode when we talked about Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu and how vampires have aged in cinema, well, what we do in the shadows is one of the finest specimens of that ageing. It's funny, it's genre-defining, it's got great dialogue, which we'll talk about later, but I do have one complaint. It's pretty anticlimactic. And I understand the mockumentary genre is about exaggerating stereotypes and lampooning the non-fiction documentary genre by raising the tension for unimportant things, but in doing so, the end of the film falls flat. So it's more like loosely related comedy sketches that feature the same characters, but nonetheless, that's no reason to not watch the film. Because it offers a lot more than that and compensates for its anticlimactic ending. Also, remember how I said that there is a baggage with which we watch old films? Having been exposed to what followed, renders the original less impressive than it is. What we do in the shadows and perhaps the satire genre knows how to make the best of this baggage of knowing. We really need to talk about this, but first, about the plot. Shot in documentary style, this mockumentary, a genre popularized by The Office, yeah, that one you'll recognize. Honestly, if I see one more Bumble profile that says quotes too much from the office. I swear. Great show though. Yeah, so there are certain visual characteristics which Springer and Rhodes call false signifiers of reality. False because they are not true, of course. And signifiers because they are understood to represent reality. Like handheld camera, location shoots, the characters talk directly to the camera and so on. Mostly the camera follows around the characters and even though what we are being told is from the point of view of the character to a large extent, the camera also gives you the whole picture to let you in on the joke. Which makes one of the core components of a mockumentary, second-hand embarrassment. And another thing, very important thing here is dialogues. It has to feel real. And I think the most tricky thing about these films is the dialogues. How do you make... The whole film sounds like a natural conversation, but a conversation that is funny. And that too, not to those involved, but to those listening, that is us, the audience. Or, I don't know, maybe it comes easy to those who are funny. I'm not a funny person, so I can't tell, but now it sounds like trivializing the art. It can't be that easy, even even if you're funny. Anyway, this documentary follows the story of four roommates. They catch? They're all vampires. Interesting premise. Haven't we all had that one soul-sucking roommate? But these guys have it good. They have a system. Even though it does not work mostly, they are happy living together. We have Viago. He is 392 years old, travelled to New Zealand in search of his love, Catherine. There's Vladislav. He is 832 years old, a mighty medieval times slayer who has lost all his charm after losing to his arch-nemesis called the Beast. Then there's Deacon, the baby of the group. He's 183, youngest and the most irresponsible. He was bit by Peter, an 8,000-year-old vampire who looks a lot like Nosferatu. This is what I was talking about when I said how the film utilizes several connotations we might have of the genre, it addresses those and pays an endearing homage to the legacy of vampires and mockumentary flicks. Just like Peter the Vampire, is living, breathing, well not living, a dead but slaying homage to Count Orlok. There are scenes dedicated to recreating the brilliance of the original. Like the scene where Orlok is first shown as a vampire is recreated to an extent when Peter is introduced. he's as terrifying as Count Orlok, even for his housemates at times. Viago startles when Peter wakes up and later in the film, one of their victims escapes and runs into Peter. Even Vladislav, the one who is supposed to be the most savage out of the group, feels sorry for the fate this victim has had to meet. But this is not a reason for conflict in the plot. Something you'd expect had this not been a satire, a good area to add tension to the plot, but here YTT and Clement subvert the classic narratives of vampires. This is not a story about power or lust, but the mundane lives of four vampires living in New Zealand. A much more humanized and a bit of a loser version of how we imagine vampires to be. They accept everything scary about Peter, like the harmless flaws one accepts of their roommates or housemates. Like talking too much while watching a film or forcing you to see every meme they find funny or shaming you for your shit skincare routine, you know? Annoying but harmless and too small in front of all their good bits. The points of conflict in this setting is undone chores and the mess caused while killing a victim and so on. In the beginning of the film, Viago, Vladislav and Deacon, Peter Raleigh comes out of his coffin, sit together. So these three sit together to discuss chores and it turns into an altercation between Viago and Deacon. You'd expect clashes over claims on victims and power and secrecy of their existence. Rivalry with werewolves, but no, unwashed dishes piling on for 5 years it is. They hiss like cats and hover into the air unsteadily, turn into bats while the other one gets excited about bat fights. I think the confrontation, altercation and fight scenes are the funniest bits in the film because their sheer absurdity has the laugh out loud factor. At least I laughed out loud a few times. And as I said earlier, a lot of it has to do with the dialogue. The key to comedy, I feel, but let's talk about that later. Viago is our main narrator, a dandy from 1800s. And this is interesting, you know who a dandy is? Or well, he used to be. It's a term used for a person back in the time who was very particular about their appearance, had a refined language and indulgent in leisurely hobbies. They were mainly known for being known, sort of sounds like fashion and lifestyle influences of the eighteen hundreds. We see his past and personality reflect in the way he talks, his mannerisms, but especially in the way he chooses to kill his victims. He believes in making the last few hours a pleasant few hours and doesn't like making a mess, even lays out newspapers and everything before biting their victim, biting his victims. He believes in making the last few hours a pleasant few hours and does not like making a mess, even lays out newspapers and everything before biting his victim. He's easily the most lovable out of all characters, one who sadly missed out on love himself because his coffin was marked with the wrong postage. So Viago is sort of the responsible one. I'd also go to the extent of calling him the kind one as opposed to Vladislav, who takes a more authoritative role in the dynamics. It's again funny because their are once great lifestyles that of Viago as a fancy dandy and Vladislav as a brute slayer have been reduced to wearing puffed sleeves to parties and standing out the windows of a plausible victim in a bid to hypnotize him into inviting them in. There's this interview where YTT and Clement talk about how these characters developed because they had been working on them since 2005. And the film was made almost a decade later in 2014. So they always had these two characters. And they would do stand-up acts around these two, and eventually developed the rest. Deacons to Nick. Which interestingly led to the plot taking the loose sketch structure it takes. Nick, although he is the classic antagonist the way he comes into the story, he then becomes the protagonist. And then he brings in another character, Stu, who in turn becomes the protagonist. Film students are going to love this. <laughs> And this intrigued me enough to read the script of this film to see what the shift of structure looks like on paper. Was it always intended or something that happened with the flow because a lot of the film is improvised. By the end of the production, they had about 150 hours of footage that had to be shortened to 90 minutes. This one increases my respect for the editors and two means there can be more versions of shadows and I'm in but then there's also one no no two there are two tv spin-offs there is only so much you can do with the idea anyway back to the script I've always been deeply interested in films and have studied literature but it took me this podcast to actually sit down and go through a script any script I've tried before but I would always give up in the middle It's always more magical to see it translate on screen so why bother with how it is written but yes bother with it because that's where the film is born. With this script, I had a simple hypothesis. If the changing of central roles was intentional, there must be some indication of it in the script. Well, it won't be directly written, oh, that now Nick is the protagonist, but either in the dialogue or how the scene is imagined or something. And I was hoping to find it in the script because if it is not there, it would probably mean it happened while it was being made. And though I really want to know how, it would have been impossible to trace. One of the parts I can say I noticed a shift happen in the film itself before reading the script has to be the inciting incident for the first conflict. Uh, which happens because of Nick's carelessness. The, Nick is the new vampire. There's this club the three older vampires always wanted to go to but the bouncer would never let them in because they have to be invited to go in and but then Nick comes into the picture and he is friends with the bouncer and the nightlife for the three vampires totally changes. And all the vampires go out in the night to find the victims. They also have human familiars with who are humans who wish to be turned into vampires and for that they pledge their service to these vampires. So the narrative is pretty Nick-oriented since his recklessness leading to a point of no return. Sure, it's very funny, but this happens in the middle of the film. Which forces the film to raise tensions again and follow up with another climax which falls on its face. Somewhere in the middle, Stu, the human is also introduced and he begins to move towards the center or rather shares it with Vladislav because the second climax is that he must ultimately face the beast again to save Stu, but it is not as great as the first one. A small example from the script is we meet Nick at the 54th page. Before this, the film is busy establishing the vampire world, the histories and lives with Viago as a main guide to it. There's a sudden shift in the dynamics, we move out of the house, Nick takes charge of the narrative, The close-up shots often used to make the audience feel closer to a character, see where they're at by observing them closely, used to establish important details, intimacy. These shots decrease as we move out of the house and the few that there are, are dedicated to Nick. And then Stu shows up. Everyone immediately grows fond of him. He's a great guy. He has a very homely vibe to him. And as the Stu narrative begins to shape, we are back in the house again. One thing it made me realize is that writing comedy is difficult. Why is what we do in the shadows funny? Or the bigger question is, why is anything funny? And thank God somebody asked this question before me because now we can stand on the shoulders of giants, as Google Scholar says, and look at humor through the lens of something that is called the benign violation theory. Written in detail in this book called The Humor Code. And it makes a lot of sense. So the writers say that for anything to be funny, it must violate a social norm. Like the norm here is flighting situation. The violation is that it's vampires living together. But the violation has to be benign. It has to be like a harmless threat. Like it's a lot more funny when an angry child threatens you than it is when a grown man does. The gravity to this the gravity of this threat significantly increases. So the violation of the norm has to be benign flat with vampires, but instead of obsessing over virginal women, they grow fond of an average IT guy. But you know, even though there is a formula to comedy, does not mean it will always work. Like, everything in the world, there's a TED talk about this as well, and not just one, but two TED talks. One each by the co-writers of this book, Peter McGraw and Joel Wardner. About the same theory, same question, what makes anything funny, and yet, I kid you not, one actually makes you laugh and the other terribly bombs. You should go to YouTube and find these if this mildly interests you. Shadows mostly gets the benign violation right. For example, take Viago's character. He used to be a dandy. All his main characteristics are that he's sensitive, he's fussy, he's a clean freak. These are also the things that could have been used to draw outdated humor from the stereotype that all these things, well, are very gay. But not once does the film turn that way except for this one time when they're out in the night going to the clubs to find victims and Viago is talking about how coming to the town is exciting because it makes him feel something and at the same time, some random kid he has homos. So again, harassment of state violation, but the timing it comes at makes it somewhat benign. But then again, this works when it comes to clever dialogues and well-timed instances. It does not help the build-up to the holy masquerade and the letdown it turns out to be. Ladislav must face his arch-nemesis and you can almost guess who it is going to be. I won't spoil it for you. It's about time I wrap this episode. And remember the TED talk I referred to by Peter McGraw? In that, he quotes W.B. White who says, Analyzing humor is like dissecting a frog. A few people are interested and the frog dies of it. So also consider this an apology for the past few minutes. In the next episode, let us stick to comedy and might as well see what zombies have been up to in modern cinema. This has to be just giving the film away. So I won't say anything more. Do check out the podcast Instagram page at the rate world underscore 8mm to find more hints and other cinema-related content. This page will also lead you to what I am up to, that is, if you're interested, find us on Instagram and let's talk films. And hey, don't forget to treat yourself with a good film this week.